Hello, my dear friends, and welcome back to another Leah's Field Notes podcast, or Leah's Voice Notes, to be more exact. Today, I just wanted to, I just want to read you a book that I started reading. I posted on my Instagram, my reading list, also some books that I have at home, and proposed a book trade, a local book trade in Montreal, and a lovely lovely beautiful young woman Lindsay Doyle she replied and the next day we traded books I gave her burning and or not burning burnout um and she traded me the book Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert who is also the author of Eat Pray Love which I've not read but watched the movie of and it sparked just like so much love inside of me wait does that make sense but basically i was like a wee child i knew nothing about traveling running away giving up your adult responsibilities but somehow i was like so swept up in this movie and i think it really embodies the type of life that i'd like to live not like selling everything and um running away from life but like just a way of living that is seeking adventure, curiosity, spontaneity. I love the part where she just goes to Italy, rents this home and the scene where she's like bathing in her beautiful, but also like kind of run down um, Italian <laughs> apartment bathroom. It's so beautiful. I would love to do that one day, but um, let's get on back on track here. So Elizabeth Gilbert, I've watched some of her videos online. My friend Mary actually recommended one of her videos called um, Careers, Vocations, Jobs, and Hobbies. And she recommended this to me while like the time when I was graduating and basically having like a crisis of like not knowing what I wanted to do with my life, if I wanted to go into design or what. And she had a wonderful youtube video talk about it she also has lovely ted talks and she just has such a fun personality a very humor humorous but real very down to earth very authentic and um, i usually don't like books where people speak in a very write in a very colloquial manner like they're just chatting to me but i like i like this book because i like i like listening to her chat anyways The book is Big Magic, and it's split into um, six different parts. So part one is Courage, and this is the one I read yesterday after getting the book in my studio. And I'm going to read it to you now with probably anecdotes of my thoughts. Maybe, maybe not. Anyways, here we go. Hidden Treasure. Once upon a time, there was a man named Jack Gilbert, who was not related to me, unfortunately for me. Jack Gilbert was a great poet, but if you've never heard of him, don't worry about it. It's not your fault. He never much cared about being known. But I knew about him, and I loved him dearly from a respectful distance, so let me tell you about him. Jack Gilbert was born in Pittsburgh in 1925 and grew up in the midst of the city's smoke, noise, and industry. He worked in factories and steel mills as a young man, but was called from an early age to write poetry. He answered the call without hesitation. He became a poet the way other men become monks, as a devotional practice, as an act of love, and as a lifelong commitment to the search for grace and transcendence. I think this is probably a very good way to become a poet, or to become anything, really, that calls to your heart and brings you to life. 
Jack could have been famous, but he wasn't into it. He had the talent, the charisma for fame, but he never had the interest. His first collection, published in 1962, won the prestigious Yale Younger Poets Prize and was nominated for the Pulitzer. What's more, he won over audiences as well as critics, which is not an easy feat for a poet in the modern world. There was something about him that drew people in and kept them captivated. He was handsome, passionate, sexy, brilliant on stage. He was a magnet for women and an idol for men. He was photographed for Vogue, looking gorgeous and romantic. People were crazy about him. He could have been a rock star. Instead, he disappeared. He didn't want to be distracted by too much commotion. Later in life, he reported that he had found his fame boring, not because it was immoral or corrupting, but simply because it was exactly the same thing every day. He was looking for something richer, more textured, more varied, so he dropped out. He went to live in Europe and stayed there for 20 years. He lived for a while in Italy, a while in Denmark, but mostly he lived in a shepherd's hut on the mountaintop in Greece. There, he contemplated the eternal mysteries, watched the light change, and wrote his poems in private. He had his love stories, his obstacles, his victories. He was happy. He got by somehow making a living here and there. He needed little. He allowed his name to be forgotten. After two decades, Jack Gilbert resurfaced and published another collection of poems. Again, the literary world fell in love with him. Again, he could have been famous. Again, he disappeared, this time for a decade. This would be his pattern always. Isolation, followed by the publication of something sublime, followed by more isolation. He was like a rare orchid with blooms separated by many years. He never promoted himself in the least. In one of the few interviews he ever gave, Gilbert was asked how he thought his detachment from the publishing world had affected his career. He laughed and said, I suppose it's been fatal. The only reason I ever heard of Jack Gilbert was that quite late in his life, he returned to America and for motives I will never know, took a temporary teaching position in the creative writing department at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. The following year, 2005, it happened that I took exactly the same job. Around campus, they started jokingly calling the position the Gilbert chair. I found Jack Gilbert's books in my office, the office that had once been his. It was almost like the room was still warm from his presence. I read his poems and was overcome by their grandeur and by how much his writing reminded me of Whitman. Quotation, we must risk delight, he wrote. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. End quote. He and I had the same surname, we'd held the same job, we inhabited the same office, we had taught many of the same students, and now I was in love with his words. Naturally enough, I became deeply curious about him. I asked around, who was Jack Gilbert? Students told me he was the most extraordinary man they'd ever encountered. He had seemed not quite of this world, they said. He seemed to live in a state of uninterrupted marvel, and he encouraged them to do the same. He didn't so much teach them how to write poetry, they said, but why? Because of delight, because of stubborn gladness. He told them that they must live their most creative lives as a means of fighting back against the ruthless furnace of this world. Man, that part got me. I was like, yes, yes. This kind of reminds me of my thesis professor, Paul Sitch, who was just like, also very much a free-spirited person and just like so supportive of everybody's ideas um whereas most professors just try to like critique the shit out of you (laughs) um anyways let's continue
Most of all, though, he asked his students to be brave. Without bravery, he instructed, they would never be able to realize the vaulting scope of their own capacities. Without bravery, they would never know the world as richly as it longs to be known. Without bravery, their lives would be, remain small, far smaller than they probably wanted their lives to be. I never met Jack Gilbert myself, and now he is gone. He passed away in 2012. I probably could have made it a personal mission to seek him out and meet him while he was living, but I never really wanted to. Experience has taught me to be careful of meeting my heroes in person. It can be terribly disappointing. Anyway, I quite like the way he lived inside my imagination as a massive and powerful presence built out of his poems and the stories I'd heard about him. So I decided to know him only that way, through my imagination. And that's where he remains for me to this day, still alive inside me, completely internalized, almost as though I dreamed him up. But I will never forget what the real Jack Gilbert told somebody else, an actual flesh and blood person, a shy University of Tennessee student. This young woman recounted to me that one afternoon after his poetry class, Jack had taken her side. He complimented her work, then asked what she wanted to do with her life. Hesitantly, she admitted that perhaps she wanted to be a writer. He smiled at the girl with infinite compassion and asked, Do you have the courage? Do you have the courage to bring forth this work? The treasures that are hidden inside you are hoping you will say yes. Creative living defined. So this, I believe, is the central question upon which all creative living hinges. Do you have the courage to bring forth the treasures that are hidden within you? Look, I don't know what's hidden within you. I might, I have no way of knowing such a thing. You yourself may barely know, although I suspect you've caught glimpses. I know, I don't know your capacities, your aspirations, your longings, your secret talents, but surely something wonderful is sheltered inside you. I say this all confidence because I happen to believe we are all walking repositories of buried treasure. I believe this is one of the oldest and most generous tricks the universe plays on us human beings, both for its own amusement and for ours. The universe buries strange jewels deep within us all and then stands back to see if we can find them. The hunt to uncover these jewels, that's creative living. The courage to go on that hunt in the first place, that's what separates a mundane existence from a more enchanted one. The often surprising results of that hunt, that's what I call big magic. An amplified existence. When I talk about creative living, please understand that I'm not necessarily talking about pursuing a life that is professionally or exclusively devoted to the arts. I'm not saying that you must become a poet who lives on a mountaintop in Greece or that you must perform at Carnegie Hall or you must win the Palme d'Or at the Keynes Film Festival, though if you want to attempt any of those feats, by all means, have at it. I love watching people swing for the bleachers. No, when I refer to creative living, I'm speaking more broadly. I'm talking about living a life that is driven more strongly by curiosity than by fear. One of the coolest examples of creative living that I've seen in recent years, for instance, came from my friend Susan, who took up figure skating when she was 40 years old. To be more precise, she actually already knew how to skate. She had competed in figure skating as a child and had always loved it, but she'd quit the sport during adolescence when it became clear she didn't have quite enough talent to be a champion. Uh, lovely adolescence, when the talented are officially shunted off from the herd thus putting the total burden of society's creative dreams on the thin shoulders of a select few souls while condemning everyone else to live a more commonplace, inspiration-free existence. What a system. 
For the next quarter of a century, my friend Susan did not skate. Why bother if you can't be the best? Then she turned 40. She was listless, she was restless, she felt drab and heavy. She did a little soul searching, the way one does on big birthdays. She asked herself when was the last time she'd felt truly light, joyous, and yes, creative in her own skin. To her shock, she realized that it had been decades since she felt that way. In fact, the last time she'd experienced such feelings had been as a teenager, back when she was still figure skating. She was appalled to discover that she had denied herself this life-affirming pursuit for so long, and she was curious to see if she still loved it. So she followed her curiosity. She bought a pair of skates, found a ring, hired a coach. She ignored the voice within her that told her she was being self-indulgent and preposterous for doing this crazy thing. She tamped down her feelings of extreme self-consciousness at being the only middle-aged woman on the ice with all those tiny, feathery nine-year-old girls. She just did it. Three mornings a week, Susan awoke before dawn, and in that groggy hour before her demanding day job began, she skated. And she skated and skated and skated. And yes, she loved it as much as ever. She loved it even more than ever, perhaps because now, as an adult, she finally had the perspective to appreciate the value of her own joy. Skating made her feel alive and ageless. She stopped feeling like she was nothing more than a consumer, nothing more than the sum of her daily obligations and duties. She was making something of herself, making something with herself. It was a revolution, a literal revolution as she spun to life again on the ice, revolution upon revolution upon revolution. Please note that my friend did not quit her job, did not sell her home, did not sever all her relationships and move to Toronto to study 70 hours a week with an exacting Olympic level skating coach. And no, the story does not end with her winning any championship medals. It doesn't have to. In fact, this story does not end at all because Susan is still figure skating several mornings a week. Simply because skating is still the best part for her to unfold a certain beauty and transcendence within her life that she cannot seem to access in any other way. And she would like to spend as much time as possible in such a state of transcendence while she's still here on earth. That's all. That's what I call creative living. And while the paths and outcomes of creative living will vary wildly from person to person, I can guarantee you this. A creative life is an amplified life. It's a bigger life, a happier life, an expanded life, and a hell of a lot more interesting life. Living in this manner, continually and stubbornly bringing forth the jewels that are hidden within you is a fine art in and of of itself. Because creative living is where big magic will always abide. Scary, scary, scary. Let's talk about courage now. If you already have the courage to bring forth the jewels that are hidden within you, terrific. You're probably already doing really interesting things with your life and you don't need this book. Rock on. But if you don't have the courage, let's try to get you some because creative living is a path for the brave. We all know this and we all know that when courage dies, creativity dies with it. We all know that fear is a desolate boneyard where dreams go to desiccate in the hot sun. This is common knowledge. Sometimes we just don't know what to do about it. Let me list for you some of the many ways in which you might be afraid to live a more creative life. You're afraid you have no talent. You're afraid of being rejected or criticized. You're afraid there's no market for your creativity. You're afraid someone else already did it better, that everybody does it better. You're afraid someone will steal your ideas. You're afraid you won't be taken seriously. You're afraid your dreams are embarrassing. 
You're afraid you don't have the right kind of discipline. You're afraid you don't have the right kind of workspace, financial freedom, empty hours. You're afraid you don't have the kind of training, degree. You're afraid of exposed as a hack, a fool. You're afraid you're too fat. You're afraid of upsetting your family. You're afraid what your peers, coworkers will say if you express your personal truth out loud. You're afraid of unleashing your innermost demons and you really don't want to encounter your innermost demons. You're afraid of your best work is behind you. You're afraid you never had any best work to begin with. You're afraid you neglected your creativity for so long that you can't get it back. You're afraid you're too old to start. You're afraid you're too young to start. You're afraid because something went well in your life. So obviously nothing can ever go well again. You're afraid because nothing has ever gone well in your life. So why bother trying? You're afraid of being a one-hit wonder. You're afraid of being a no-hit wonder. Listen, I don't have all day here, so I'm not going to keep listing fears. It's a bottomless list. Anyhow, and a depressing one. I'll just wrap up my summary this way. Scary, scary, scary. Everything is so goddamn scary. Defending your weakness. Please understand that the only reason I can speak so authoritatively about fear is that I know it so intimately. I know every inch of fear from head to toe. I've been a frightened person my entire life. I was born terrified. I'm not exaggerating. You can ask anyone in my family and they'll confirm that yes, I was an exceptionally freaked out child. My earliest memories are of fear are as pretty much all the memories that come after my earliest memories. Growing up, I was afraid not only of all the commonly recognized and legitimate childhood dangers, such as the dark, strangers, the deep end of the swimming pool, but I was also afraid of an extensive list of completely benign things, snow, perfectly nice babysitters, cars, playgrounds, stairs, Sesame Street, the phone, board games, the grocery store, sharp blades of grass, any new situation whatsoever, anything that dared to move. I was a sensitive and easily traumatized creature who would fall into fits of weeping at any disturbance in her force field. My father, exasperated, used to call me Pitiful Pearl. We went to the Delaware shore one summer when I was eight, and the ocean upset me so much that I tried to get my parents to stop all the people on the beach from going into the surf. Da blah, 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 blah. Um, let's skip, skip, skip. Her mother. Okay, she wasn't having a minute of my drama, which is probably the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. My mom grew up on a farm in Minnesota, the proud product of tough Scandinavian immigrants, and she was not about to raise a little candy ass, not on her watch. My mother had a plan for turning around my fear that was almost comic in its straightforwardness. At every turn, she made me do exactly what I dreaded most. Scared of the ocean? Get in that ocean. Afraid of the snow? Time to go shovel snow. Can't answer the telephone? You are now officially in charge of answering the telephone in this house. Hers was not a sophisticated strategy, but it was consistent. Trust me, I resisted her. I cried and sulked and deliberately failed. I refused to thrive. I lagged behind, limping and trembling. I would do almost anything to prove that I was emotionally and physically totally enfeebled. To which my mom was like, no, you aren't. I spent years pushing back against my mother's unshakable faith in my strength and abilities. Then one day, somewhere in adolescence, I finally realized that this was a really weird battle for me to be fighting. Defending my weakness? That's seriously the hill I wanted to die on? As the saying goes, argue for your limitations and you get to keep them. Why would I want to keep my limitations? I didn't, as it turned out. I don't want you keeping yours either. Fear is boring. Over the years, I've often wondered what finally made me stop playing the role of Pitiful Pearl almost overnight. 
Surely there were many factors involved in that evolution, the tough mom, the growing up, but mostly I think it was just this. I finally realized that my fear was boring. Mind you, my fear had always been boring to everybody else, but it wasn't until mid-adolescent that it became at last boring even to me. My fear became boring to me, I believe, for the same reason that fame became boring to Jack Gilbert, because it was the same thing every day. Around the age of 15, I somehow figured out that my fear had no variety to it, no depth, no substance, no texture. I noticed that my fear never changed, never delighted, never offered a surprise twist or an unexpected ending. My fear was a song with only one note and only one word actually, and that word was stop. My fear never had anything more interesting or subtle to offer than one emphatic word repeated at full volume on an endless loop. Stop, 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 stop which means that my fear always made predictably boring decisions, like a choose-your-own-ending book that always had the same ending, nothingness. I also realized that my fear was boring because it was identical to everyone else's fears. I figured out that everyone's song of fear had exactly the same tedious lyric, stop, 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 stop. True, the volume may vary from person to person, but the song itself never changes because all of us humans were equipped with the same basic fear package when we were being knitted in our mother's wombs. And not just humans. If you pass your hand over a petri dish containing a tadpole, the tadpole will flinch beneath your shadow. That tadpole cannot write poetry, it cannot sing, and it will never know love or jealousy or triumph, and it has a brain the size of a punctuation mark, but it damn sure knows how to be afraid of the unknown. Well, so do I, and so do we all, but there's nothing particularly compelling about that. Do you see what I mean? You don't get any special credit, is what I'm saying, for knowing how to be afraid of the unknown. Fear is a deeply ancient instinct, in other words, and an evolutionary vital one, but it ain't especially smart. For the entirety of my young and skittish life, I had fixated upon my fears as if they were the most interesting thing about me, when actually it was the most mundane. In fact, my fear was probably the only 100% mundane thing about me. I had creativity within me that was original. I had a personality within me that was original. I had dreams and perspectives and aspirations within me that were original. But my fear was not original in the least. My fear wasn't some kind of rare artisanal object, it was just a mass-produced item available on the shelves of any generic bookstore. And that's the thing I wanted to build my entire independent that's the thing I wanted to build my entire identity around. The most boring instinct I possessed? The panic reflex of my dumbest inner tadpole? No. The fear you need and the fear you don't need. Now, you probably think I'm going to tell you that you must become fearless in order to live a more creative life, but I'm not going to tell you that because I don't want, I don't happen to believe it's true. Creativity is a path for the brave, yes, but it's not a path for the fearless, and it's important to recognize the distinction. Bravery means doing something scary. Fearlessness means not even understanding what the, world's, what the word scary means. If your goal in life is to become fearless, then I believe you're ready on the wrong path because the only true fearless people I've ever met were straight up psychopaths and a few exceptionally reckless three-year-olds and those aren't good role models for anyone. The truth is, you need your fear for obvious reasons of basic survival. Evolution did it well to install a fear reflex within you because if you didn't have any fear, you wouldn't lead a short, you would lead a short crazy stupid life. You would walk into traffic, you would drift off into the woods and be eaten by bears. Blah, 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 blah. Um, blah, 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 blah. okay 
Basically, you do not need your fear in the realm of creative expression. Just because you don't need your fear when it comes up to creativity, of course, doesn't mean your fear won't show up. Trust me, your fear will always show up, especially when you're trying to be inventive or innovative. Your fear will always be triggered by your creativity because creativity asks you to enter into realms of uncertain outcome. And fear hates uncertain outcome. Your fear programmed by evolution to be hypervigilant and insanely overprotective will always assume that any uncertain outcome is destined to end in a bloody, horrible death. Basically, your fear is like a mall cop who thinks he's a Navy SEAL. He hasn't slept in days, he's all hopped up on Red Bull, and he's liable to shoot at his own shadow in an absurd effort to keep everyone safe. This is all totally natural and human. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It is, however, something that very much needs to be dealt with. And this is her analogy of how to deal with it. The road trip. I made a decision a long time ago that if I wanted creativity in my life, and I do, then I will have to make space for fear too. Plenty of space. I decided that I would need to build an expansive enough interior life that my fear and my creativity could peacefully coexist since it happened that they would always be together. In fact, it seems to me that my fear and my creativity are basically conjoined twins, as evidenced by the fact that creativity cannot take a single step forward without fear marching right alongside it. Fear and creativity shared a womb. They were born at the same time, and they still share some vital organs. This is why we have to be careful of how we handle our fear, because I've noticed that when people try to kill off their fear, they often end up inadvertently murdering their creativity in the process. So don't try to kill off my fear. I don't want to go to war against it. Instead, I make all that space for it, heaps of space, every single day. I'm making space for fear right this moment. I allow my fear to live and breathe and stretch out its legs comfortably. It seems to me that the less I fight my fear, the less it fights back. If I can relax, fear relaxes too. In fact, a cordially invited fear to come along with me everywhere I go. I even have a welcoming speech prepared for fear, which I deliver right before embarking on any new project or big adventure. It goes like this. Dearest fear, creativity and I are about to go on a road trip together. I understand you'll be joining us because you always do. I acknowledge that you believe you have an important job to do in my life and that you take your job seriously. Apparently, your job is to induce complete panic whenever I'm about to do anything interesting. And may I say you are superb at your job. So by all means, keep doing your job if you feel you must. But I will also be doing my job on this creative road, on this road trip, which is to work hard and stay focused. And creativity will be doing its job which is to remain stimulating and inspiring. There's plenty of room in this vehicle for all of us, so make yourself at home. But understand this, creativity and I are the only ones who will be making any decisions along the way. I recognize and respect that you're part of this family, and so I will never exclude you from our activities. But still, your suggestions will never be followed. You're allowed to have a seat, and you're allowed to have a voice, but you're not allowed to have a vote. You're not allowed to touch the road maps. You're not allowed to suggest detours. You're not allowed to fiddle with the temperature. Dude, you're not even allowed to touch the radio. But above all else, my dear old familiar friend, you're absolutely forbidden to drive. Then we head off together, me and creativity and fear side by side forever, advancing once more into the terrifying but marvelous terrain of unknown outcome. Why it's worth it. The last paragraph. It isn't always comfortable or easy carrying your fear around with you on your great and ambitious road trip. 
I mean, it's always worth it because if you can't learn to travel comfortably alongside your fear, then you'll never be able to go anywhere interesting or do anything interesting. And that would be a pity because your life is short and rare and amazing and miraculous and you want to do really interesting things and make really interesting things while you're still here. I know that's what you want for yourself because that's what I want for myself too. It's what we all want. And you have treasures hidden within you, extraordinary treasures, and so do I, and so does everyone around us. And bringing those treasures to light takes work and faith and focus and courage and hours of devotion. And the clock is ticking and the world is spinning and we simply do not have time anymore to think so small. And that is the first part of Big Magic, courage. And I really like it. It really spoke to me. I thought about a lot of when I was younger and in the summers or whenever there was like some type of basically educational or travel opportunity, I would always take it. And there were lots of moments when I'm traveling abroad or, you know, traveling alone where I have a sense of fear. Like when I went on my first um, French learning trip, it was like a three week trip where I stayed with a host family in Nice. Um, I did not understand what people were saying to me like I was not able to even speak in French at that point like in Canada you do start learning French when you're about 10 but it's just like not serious it's not in the way that Europeans were taught English and everyone actually had to pay attention like no one cared um, or gave a shit or took it seriously but basically first day arrived and none of my suitcases came so I was just like (laughs) only had the clothes on me the shops were all closed it was like a sunday or something so like no no stores were open to even buy clean underwear and like classes started the next morning really early you had to go in and register and i was obviously deathly afraid i knew nobody i was by myself in a foreign city with no luggage i didn't have my toothbrush which is now why I do travel with the most essential things in my carry-on, or at least a few sets of clothes. Um, and I remember we were in line, and there's just this like super tall dude standing ahead of me who's also by himself because some other people, a lot of people, go with a friend or something. And I just remember like really being like, Leah, you need to speak to this person, like say hi to this person, start a conversation with them, and. And I did, somehow I did. And I was like, hi, like, what are you, like, what level are you in? Or like, are you, where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. And this was like my my first friend. And it really turned my day around from being like such a fearful, distraught experience of having zero luggage to like, okay, I made like kind, kind of made a new friend um, and now I'm gonna continue talking to other people and I don't know like putting myself in these new experiences that I think now as an older adult self this fear side of you um is a bit louder I feel like because of whatever responsibilities you feel like are tied to adulthood and I've been contemplating of you know either one traveling going to a different city or to going back to school so i feel like those are kind of my two options right now and i've been thinking more about going back to school because obviously traveling is not the safest thing to do right now even though it's 
you know, borders are opening up a bit. So I've been thinking a lot about going back to school and I don't know, still just have worries about like, is this the right thing to do? Is this the right time? How do I fit that in with YouTube? Blah, 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 blah. And I think I really needed this courage chapter to just be like, hey, like, I'm still young and I'm on the path to discovering like what these so-called hidden treasures are inside of me. Like, what do I have to offer to the world, to the people around me? Um, And finding like this little community of lovely people through YouTube has been like a beautiful discovery in the past year that I was initially very afraid to do. I was actually very against the idea of trying to do YouTube, but my friend was like really encouraging, was like, hey, you should just try, see where it goes. And look where it went. Look where we are at now. It's amazing. Like, I'm not so fixated on numbers and everything, but half a million, 500,000 subscribers, that's a crazy big number. And more importantly i've got to meet so many like lovely people in person um sometimes very randomly like while i'm just like eating on a patio so i don't really actually get to talk to people for an extended period of time but also like yesterday when i traded the book with Lindsay and we had like a coffee and sat in the park and chat and it's just like moments like that are so lovely and makes me feel so happy and just knowing that having created this channel i know i'll have those like lovely interactions with people who stumbled across my channel um hopefully through my whole life like that's what i really hope i want to be able to travel around the world and you know bump into people or make coffee dates and just talk and get glimpses into everyone's lives so yeah this is the first chapter. It's called Courage. I'm going to read Enchantment next. I kind of started reading it on my own, but I was like, if I don't start recording this, I'm not going to. I'm just going to read through the whole book. Okay. See you guys soon. Goodbye. Love you. Mwah.